Deuteronomy chapter 5 and verse 1. And Moses called all Israel and said unto them, Hear, O Israel, the statutes and judgments which I speak in your ears this day, that ye may learn them and keep them and do them. My friends, we're continuing this morning uh, with our studies uh, in the book of uh, Deuteronomy. And we've uh, reached this uh, fifth chapter. And my title for the morning is uh, Divine Ideals for Fallen Man. Divine Ideals is encapsulated in these uh, ten commandments. Well, what a, a amazing ten words as they're often referred to uh, these, uh, these commandments are. And we'll come to them in just a moment. But we want to perhaps reset the scene. Perhaps you haven't been with us, but uh, we're going to just briefly reset. Moses is there uh, on the other side, on the east side of the Jordan River. On the, other, on the west side is Canaan. They're ready to enter in. They're ready to take the land which God has given to them. But before they go in, Moses is preaching to them. Moses has gathered that vast congregation of Israel, that new generation that has risen, the old generation has passed away because of their unbelief, because of their sin previously, fell under God's judgment and passed away. And now this new generation is risen up and Moses is preaching the word to them. And Moses is reminding them of what God has done for them and here of what has God has said to them. He's remind them, reminding them of the law of God. These are the things that are, is important. It's his second address. We see that from uh, verse 1. Moses called all Israel and said unto them, Hear, O Israel, the statutes and the judgments which I speak in your ears this day. Now, there were three kinds of law that God gave uh, to Israel. There was the judicial law. There was the ceremonial law, which had to do with the religious part of their, of their worship and the sacrifices and how they were to approach God. And then there was the moral law, which is what the Ten Commandments refers to. And that was not only for them, but that was for all people. As we said, even when we were looking at this, uh, a similar passage, Exodus 20, just last week, uh, we said how the Jews, they said uh, God gave uh, the, the Ten Commandments to the people uh, in, in the wilderness and not in Palestine. And for them, that was a reason to show that it wasn't only for the Jews, but that it was for all nations. Everyone uh, is, comes under this law. And so it is. This law of God, the moral law of God, it is not only for all people, it's for all time. It cannot change. Unless God changes his ways, unless God becomes a different personality, the Ten Commandments cannot change because they are but a reflection of the Lord God. And so we want to think of, we're thinking about uh, these things this morning. Remember how 40 years previously uh, Moses uh, went through, Moses was given rather uh, these commandments uh, from God. And uh, we we can see these in the first uh, few verses uh, where 
in, in verse 2, the Lord our God made a covenant with us in Horeb. That was, they'd just come out of Egypt three months in, into the journey, and there at Mount Sinai, the Lord made not this covenant with our fathers, or not only with our fathers, but also with us, even us, who are all of us here alive this day. The Lord talked with you face to face in the mount out of the midst of the fire. At that time, on Mount Sinai, God spoke verbally to them, audibly to all the people. He was directing his words to Moses, but he was in the, in the hearing, uh, in the earshot of all those two million who had come out of, Israel, of uh, Egypt. So everyone here heard those ten words. Verse 5, I stood between the Lord and you at that time to show you the word of the Lord, for ye were afraid by reason of the fire and went not up into the mount. You can read it for yourself, Exodus 19 and 20. How uh, when the Lord, before he gave uh, those Ten Commandments, and he, the people had to prepare themselves, had to sanctify themselves. And then when the Lord came down, the whole mountain uh, was on fire and was smoked and a great cloud and darkness and the mountain itself shook so that the people were terrified when they heard these things. Well, friends, uh, this is, this is uh, the, the, the background to what, what Moses is saying. He's reminding them that this of this covenant, this national covenant, a covenant of works that they stood in. And uh, now he's going to go through it one by one. This new generation, they need to know, how are they to live in Canaan? How are they to conduct themselves? They are a, a people who have come out. They, they're, uh, they're a nation now. But how are they to, what laws should govern them? They, they don't need to uh, be, uh, they don't need to sit together and come up with laws because God himself has given them the laws that they need. And here uh, we see what they are. But the rules that, are, that should be enacted for a harmonious society are given to them by the Lord himself. Well, friends, just early on, how are we to live as Christians? How are we to live as believers in this world? We need guidance. The Lord has saved us. The Lord has uh, called us and we have come to know him. We've repented of our sins. We've believed in him. We've trusted in him. We've, he's changed our lives. And we're so glad and grateful to him. Now, how am I to live my life? How am I to serve him? How am I uh, to conduct myself through this world? What place should God occupy in my life? How should I treat my neighbors? How should I behave with the people around about me? Well, the answer, friends, is given to us here in these Ten Commandments. We have them in a praisey form. And then you see how even in the New Testament, uh, Paul and the other apostles, they will take the Ten Commandments and they expound it for us in greater detail. Yeah, but a lot of it is based and comes from here. Well, friends, these are uh, wonderful things. But if, uh, if I'm not a believer, so as a believer, these this Ten Commandments act as a guide for me. But if I'm not a believer, friends, please don't use it to, for salvation. 
Don't use it to say to yourself, well, I must try and keep these ten laws as best as I can, and then uh, God will accept me, and then I will go to heaven. At least I've tried to keep. That's not why God gave these ten commandments. He didn't give it to us so that we try and keep it in order to get to heaven. The, uh, the only way you can be saved is by trusting in Jesus Christ. He is the one who alone can save you, none other. Not these laws, not somebody else, not what you do. You must go to Christ. You must lean and trust in Him alone and in His shed blood. And that alone can save you. Use these Ten Commandments to look at yourself, to examine yourself, to see how far short you fall before God. If you don't feel your need for God, and you don't feel your need for salvation and for Christ, well, by all means, use this to examine yourself, to see how far short we fall from meeting God's standards. And then you'll feel at the same time, I need a Savior. I cannot do it. I cannot please God. I cannot reach His standards. I need a saviour. Well, friends, when we compare uh, the words found uh, in uh, Exodus 20 when it was first given, and these words now in Deuteronomy chapter 5, there is a little difference. There are a few words uh, here and there, but uh, basically they are the same. The first four commands are vertical, and they have to do with our relationship with God. And the last six are horizontal, and they have to do with our relationship with others. Many focus only on the last six commands, and they neglect uh, the first four. But the first four are primary. The first four are the greater ones. You remember what Christ said in Matthew chapter 22 and verse 36, when that lawyer came to him and tempted him, said, Master, which is the great commandment in the law? And you remember what Christ's response was. Jesus said unto him, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul and with all thy mind. This is the first and great commandment. That's it. To love the Lord. The second is like it. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Well, enough from, of my preamble. Let's have a look, friends, at this, uh, these ten uh, commandments. And I can only uh, do, uh, do so in a very brief way. But I want to focus really on these first four. The firstly, the first commandment, verse 6 and 7. I am the Lord thy God, which brought thee out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. The word there, besides, uh, before me, uh, or besides me, is, is in Exodus, means you're, you're to have no other God alongside me. No other God who sits on the same platform as me. There's no other God. I'm not to be one God among many gods that you worship. I alone am to be the God that you worship. I am not one of many. Now, Israel had just, at that time, come from Egypt. They had been delivered from Egypt, and Egypt was a, a polytheistic society. They had many gods. They had many religions. They, they had priests from different religions. They worshipped different things. Pharaoh was one of 
was a deity to them. The river Nile was worshipped. The crocodile in the river was worshipped. The sun was worshipped. All these different things, other land animals that they, they worshipped. So they had come from a polytheistic uh, background in Egypt. That's what they had been familiar with. And God has brought them out and he says, you're not to be like that. You're only to be, you're to be monotheistic. You are to worship one God because there is only one true God. There isn't many gods. There is only one God who has created and made the world. There are not many gods. There is only one God who has made you and made you for himself. That's what he's saying. He alone uh, is to be worshipped. This God alone is to be honoured and served and him other. There is to be no competitor alongside him. He alone must take the first place. God must be at the very centre of their lives. You mustn't push him to one side, he's saying. You mustn't put him on the fringes. You mustn't put him on the outskirts of your life. He is to be at the very centre of your lives as individuals, as families, as tribes, as a nation. He is to be, God is to be centre. God is going to be the one who is ruling and governing them. But he is the one who is to take that central place in them. The application, friends, is obvious, isn't it, for us? That God must come first in our lives. That man, you and I, we were created, as we've said, by God and for God. We were made to worship Him. God must take the first place in our lives. God must be the one who has the first place in our affections. Nothing else must come uh, in, uh, before Him. He must be the primary uh, love of our hearts, first in our hearts, first in our affections. As we read, we must love Him, love Him. Not just serve Him, not just do what's right before Him, but we must love Him above all others. And we'll look more at that, God willing, next week. He is not to be treated like a defibrillator, which you can find in the schools and the gyms and other places, which are on, hanging on the wall, and in times of emergency, well, you pull it down and use it. That's how some people treat God. Only in times of emergency, they will pray and call upon Him. No. He's not to be like used in that kind of a way. He is not to be one, uh, one interest that we have in life among many interests, one compartment of our life in the many different compartments that we have. Oh, I'm interested in football. I'm interested in shopping. I am interested in watching TV. And then I have my work and I have my family and I have my other things which I, I do. I like to go on holiday. Oh, yes, and alongside that, I go to church and I have my religion and I have my faith in God. It's not to be like that. Of course, you have the other things in life, but God is to be the chief interest, the main thing in our life, the central thing about us as believers, to love him above all other. The other things are secondary. Family is secondary. Our interests, our pastimes are secondary. God must come first. The Lord, as we could say colloquially, is the love of my life. He is the one 
that we love above all others. Get this commandment right, friends. Get this right. And all the others, well, they just fall into place quite naturally. Well, let's look at the second one. This command has to do with worship. Verse 8, Thou shalt not make thee any graven image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, all that is in the earth beneath, all that is in the waters beneath the earth. Thou shalt not bow down thyself unto them, nor serve them. For I, the Lord thy God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children unto the third and fourth generation of them that hate me, and showing mercy unto thousands of them that love me and keep my commandments. Oh, friends, this is, as we said, to do uh, with, uh, with worship and how we worship God. And it was so common in those times, those ancient times, for uh, people to use uh, idols, to make idols, to make images of things. As we've said, even in Egypt, those land animals or things in the sky, the, the sun and so on, and to, to worship it. And uh, to make uh, uh, people, sadly, today are still d doing the same. In some parts of the world, people still make images and still carve uh, idols and use them as aids in worship or in direct worship as well. Some make very small ones. Some make big, big, huge uh, statues and think because it's, it's so big, it's so great, It'll be greater than the smaller ones. That's how people think. But a statue, friends, is still man-made. It cannot do anything. A statue is a statue. An image is an image. It doesn't have life. It's an inanimate thing. It cannot hear your prayers. It cannot answer your prayers. You see blessings from it, but it cannot bless you. It has no power. It's lifeless. It's inanimate. It's made by human beings. You can't see that sometimes. I mean, maybe it's not so common in this country, but if you go to other, other countries, it's, uh, very, uh, uh, it's, it's very noticeable uh, that uh, they still have these things. In fact, the Roman Catholic religion merges this first commandment and the second commandment together because they don't like the second commandment because it's a conviction to them uh, because they still have their images and they still have their statues in their churches and they break the tenth commandment into two well that's we would think uh, not doing not not the right order this second co commandment is forbidding the use of idols or images uh, in worship the children of israel themselves had been guilty of this you remember uh, when moses went up into the mount to uh, collect those two tablets of stone with the Ten Commandments on it. But what did the people say? Well, he's been up there for so long. He's been up there so long. When's he coming down? Oh, well, he got so impatient. And they said to Aaron, listen, this is their words, make us gods. How can you make a god? Make us gods. You can't make God. He makes you, but you can't make him. But he said, make us gods. And Aaron rather foolishly said, Oh, collect all the golden earrings. And when they did that, the people made a golden calf. And then they bowed down to it and they said, These be thy gods, O Israel, which brought thee up out of the land of Egypt. 
They're guilty as well. And they fell into idolatry here. In Romans chapter 1, verse 23, Paul very tellingly shows us and tells us about the downward trajectory of man, that man moves away from the worship of the true God to images. He goes from the God, the monotheistic worship of God, to the polytheistic worship of many gods and the worship of images. Listen to what he says. Man changes in his, this downward path when he refuses to listen to God. He changes the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like unto corruptible man and to birds and to four-footed beasts and creeping things. An image, friends. Uh, this, is, uh, this is the downward trend of man. But an image, as we said, an idol is inanimate, neither can it reflect the true God. How can an image, how can an idol represent the Almighty God? He is omnipotent. He is omnipresent. He is everywhere. He can see all things. He is gracious. He is so kind. How can a, a, an idol, uh, something made with man, capture all these wonderful, amazing attributes of God? It cannot. It cannot. It's impossible. He is forgiving. He is merciful. How can the images uh, capture all these things? Friends, uh, we shouldn't use these things or other things uh, in, in worship how then should we worship? What aid should we have when we come to worship God? Shall we have the aid of music? Shall we have the aid of the beat and the rhythm? Oh, no beat, no rhythm. It's not true worship, some people say. Is that so? What is true worship? We need the rocky music. We need the concert, we need the bands, that's true music, that's true worship. No, friends. The Bible says, Christ said, he taught us how we are to worship. Worship the Father, he said, in spirit and in truth. What does that mean? We worship him with our minds. So we have the scriptures, the revelation of God, and we have the works of God and the person of God uh, revealed to us, and we we. Think on these things. And as we come to the Lord, we express our love for Him, our adoration for Him in words. But it's derived from our thoughts that come from the Scriptures. We don't need the extra other aids uh, in worship. The Bible is more than sufficient. Friends, we move on to our third, the third commandment. And I have to hurry. Verse 11 Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless that taketh his name in vain. Well, to use God's name in vain is to use it carelessly, uh, thoughtlessly, irreverently. Uh, the name of, represents the person, and in this case, to, it represents the Almighty God. It's a great name. Because it's a great person it's representing. It's a majestic name. It's a holy name. A name that is to be held in awe 
And we reverence and we godly fear to think even about that name. Not to be used in a flippant kind of way but to be very careful even in our use of it. You know, the Jews maybe went a bit overboard, but they wouldn't pronounce the word Jehovah because they felt it's too sacred. But they had some idea of the reverence that was due to that name. So we want to think about that name. Don't use it in a flippant, light way, but think of it with reverence and great respect because that's who God is. Now, it's very easy uh, for us uh, to slip into thoughtless worship even. That even when we come together to worship, we may, in prayer, or we may, when we are singing the hymns, just uh, use it and sing and, and pray without really thinking about who we're addressing. Without really thinking about the words that we're saying. Without meaning them. We may just, as it were, go through the motions. So we want to be careful. We want to be careful that uh, we don't fall uh, and uh, sin even in our worship. But of course, friends, and this is obvious, this command prohibits all profanity of any kind, all swearing, all cursing, as the Americans say, all cussing. All these kinds of things are out by this uh, commandment. And yet, profanity It's so endemic in our culture, our Western culture especially. It's a part of people's vocabulary. It's acceptable to so many. Very few batter an eyelid now when bad swear words are used. Very few frown upon it. Perhaps they once did, but not, uh, not, uh, not so much now. But it's not acceptable to God that we use his name in vain. For the Lord will not hold him guiltless that taketh his name in vain. God doesn't skip over it. It's an idle word maybe to people, but God doesn't treat it in that way. He will take note of it. He will punish those who misuse his name. But one hears the name of God used as a swear word everywhere, isn't it? You hear it in the home. You hear it in schools, you hear it in the office, politicians curse, the sales assistant in the shop curses, the rich man curses, the beggar swears, even the housewife swears, some little thing happens, some surprising thing happens, everything has to be, oh, suddenly they use the name of God in a a terrible way. Profaned. Profaned words are so liberal. Adults swear, children swear. I remember when I was in China and I was uh, teaching English, and some of the young, I came across, uh, not, more, not once, but more than once, I came across a youngster, maybe just six, seven years old, couldn't speak any English, but they could say OMG. Where did they know that? They look at me, think it's a joke. And they say those words as if they know English so well. And they were, they didn't know really. But how do they know? What's happening? Who's behind all this? Of course, it's the enemy, isn't it? Satan hates that name. Satan hates Christ. 
Christ more than anyone now. His name has been taken in an even viler way. And it's getting worse and worse. And we can hardly bear it. We wish sometimes they had, the, you know, on these TV shows, if you watch, they will, somebody uses a swear word, they will beep, 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 and beep out all the swear words. We wish you could hear and have that in conversation with people every day. That they would just beep out their, their words because it's becoming so frequent. Oh, friends, God takes note of these things. Somebody said, an American said, we jail the person who profanes the American flag while the profaning of God's name is a national pastime. Same could be said here almost, isn't it? And another person gave the illustration and he said, well, the devil is, is like a fisherman and uh, some people he uses the bait uh, perhaps of, of money to draw, draw, to catch them, and with another he'll use the bait of uh, perhaps a lust or, or of alcohol or some other thing. Uh, that he'll, but with some people he just puts the hook in and he catches them without any bait. And those people, he says, are the swearers. Those who just take God's name in vain. They're not getting anything back, as it were, in return. Being, uh, he's, been, he's catching them in this way. The Lord's name is so uh, precious. Friends, let's move on to number four. Uh, the, the Lord's day. Keep the Sabbath day to sanctify it as the Lord thy God hath commanded thee. Six days shalt thou labor and do all thy work. But the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord thy God. To sanctify, it means, is equivalent to keep it holy. Separate one day in seven uh, for the Lord. Set it apart for the Lord and for the spiritual needs of your soul. That's so vital. You need this, God is saying. It's a call uh, to rest from your secular activity. And uh, if you can, some people cannot, some people have jobs, where they must work on the, on the Sunday. They must, their doctors or their nurses, or these days even sometimes IT people have to work on a Sunday. And we can understand that. But uh, if you can, if you can keep Sunday free, if it's in your power to keep the day free, then do that, friends. Do that. But if you can't, then that's understandable. But here, there's a call to rest from work to set aside one day for the Lord. A day, yes, to take uh, some rest, but uh, the chief thing here for these people and for us was that they were to sanctify it so that they could focus on uh, the Lord and the worship of Him. So that they didn't have work and other things to distract them. Some people, when they think about this commandment, they're only thinking about rest or rest. That's the first word that comes into their mind when they think about the Lord's day. And yes, as you said, rest is, if you can have a nap on the Sunday, that's not a problem. That's not a diff- you need some physical rest. But the main thought, I think, is sanctify. Sanctify, which is not only set apart, but sanctify that the worship of God, set apart the day for the Lord. Oh, friends, I've said this uh, on, on Thursday at our Bible study, but if it's difficult for you to, to spend uh, the day for the Lord, 
you should try it. You can, I had a difficulty with it when I, uh, when, when I first came across, this is what God requires me to do. I was so used to just going to church on Sunday morning, and then on the afternoon, I'd be watching the football, and I'd be doing my own things, my own whatever I like to do. And then I came across and was persuaded, this is what God wants me to do. This is how I should live. But it wasn't easy to change. But it was possible. And you get used to it. And even more, you, you think, why didn't I do that earlier? You regret that you didn't spend the day for the Lord. It doesn't mean you have to be in church the whole day. It doesn't mean you have to spend the whole t- uh, time uh, here. But the day needs to be set apart for, for the Lord. And, of course, the, in the Old Testament dispensation, that Sabbath day was the seventh day, the Saturday. But since the new time of the New Testament church, the practice has been uh, right until today that the church worships on Sunday, the first day of the week, the day when Christ rose from the dead. So this commandment, friends, is still valid for today. Regrettably, it's little observed by believers. And, uh, of course, even by the world, we see how more and more uh, the world is uh, making this day just like any other day. And the shops are open longer and more and more sports are happening on this particular day and entertainment on this day. Once again, we ask the question, who is behind all these changes? Who is behind it? Who is giving the impetus to the government and other politicians to change, bring in all these changes? It's the devil. The devil doesn't like anything that God does. And he doesn't like God's day. Oh, friends, uh, it's him who is out to disparage and minimize this particular day. Now, you may say, Pastor, you're always talking about this. You're always reminding us about this. Well, I have to. I have to in one sense. Because if somebody is stealing something from you, if somebody is stealing something valuable and precious from you or from your house, and I keep quiet, would you talk, consider me a friend? Wouldn't you want me to shout out, there's somebody stealing your mobile phone, or there's somebody stealing uh, something from your home? Of course, and that's the devil, friends. If you could think about, about it like this, the devil is out to steal the blessings of this day from you. He's out to steal it from you. To, he's out to negate as much as he can the spiritual side of you. To make you more secular. It's a great blessing to come uh, and to hear the Lord's word. To be in his house. And the devil often will try and steal uh, that uh, from you. And so I have to remind you of these things. But uh, the fifth commandment, let's move on and I'll just do, deal briefly with the remaining six, but uh, these are now the horizontal commands, how we relate uh, to one another. Uh, these six commands, well, if they are followed, friends, they act as tremendous safeguards for our society, giving protection to the home, to marriages, to personal property, to truth, to society. This is, the, uh, if, if uh, uh, even adopted uh, by governments uh, and put into law, this will be a safeguard uh, for us. It begins here with this uh, fifth commandment. Honor 
And that in verse 16, honour thy father and thy mother as the Lord thy God hath commanded thee, that thy days may be prolonged, and that it may go well with thee in the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee. Honour, weigh heavily is the meaning. In other words, respect your parents. Uh, submit to them, to obey them. Now children, if you respect your parents and the authority of your parents, if you listen to them and you submit yourself to them, well, you're training yourself very well for your future. By listening to the authority in the home, it means that you, are, you will listen to, to the authority in the, in the public life as you are growing up in your in society, that good attitude that you have adopted and that you have gained uh, in your early youth, your childhood, well, that, that will, you can carry that attitude of submission to authority with you into the school and into the university and into married life and so on. Uh, you will be a good law-abiding student as a citizen because you have learned to submit. You won't be a troublemaker in society because you learnt in the home to submit to authority. So you see, it has a wider implication than just the home. It begins there. But children who learn to honour their parents and respect them will, begin, will also respect and honour those who are above them in their workplace or in the government or so on uh, as they go on. They won't be troublemakers. That's what, when it says here that it may go well with thee, it was a reference to their time as in the land of uh, Canaan. Not, not an individual, it'll go well with these specifically, but it'll, in the land that they were going in Canaan, these things would, as it were, all the children uh, think of all those families, children obeying, and the tribes that they were connected to, and then how that would expand out into society, if everyone was doing those things, all the children were submitting that kind of way, it would lead to a peaceful, ordered society. And there would be little trouble. That's what it means when it says that it may go well with thee. But uh, the sixth commandment, well, you're familiar with this, thou shalt not kill. But uh, the word is, is better translated Murder, thou shalt not murder. All human life is sacred to God. All are made in God's image. To destroy or injure somebody deliberately or by neglect or through carelessness, well, is sin before God. Because no matter where you are from, everyone, though that image, everyone is made in God's image, but that image is so marred in us. Yet each one uh, is, uh, is precious in God's sight. Now, straight away you may say, Oh, I'm not guilty. I've never murdered anybody. Well, I hope not. But have you? Have you? Because when you, when you see the spiritual side of it, which is what Christ takes us to, the spiritual side of this commandment is not just the outward act of murder, that's the chief sin, that's the main sin, that's the one at the top, but below it are all the other family sins, and Christ said, if you 
uh, are angry with your brother in an uncontrollable way, if you have a great rage against him without cause, then you're guilty of this sin. And Apostle John said in 1 John 3.15, whoever hates another person is a murderer. So if there is hatred in a person's heart for somebody else, that belongs to the same family of sins. But we must also think, and I really haven't got time at all, uh, but if you, every command here, uh, even when it's put in a negative way, you must also think about the positive side of it. And here as well, when it says, you shall not kill, it's also the positive side of it would be, well, you must also think of preserving your neighbor's life and doing good to your neighbor. Who is my neighbor? It's not just the person living next door to you. It includes them. But it's somebody who is close to you. Your brothers and sisters in the church here are your neighbors. Your colleagues you are close to, you're in contact with, they are your neighbors. Those people who are near to you, uh, uh, the stranger even perhaps is, we could say is your neighbor, but you have to think about them. You have to think, well, uh, be concerned for them. How can I enhance their happiness? How can I make their life easier? How can I be a blessing to these people? That's the positive side of this command. Not only to take the life, but you want to, as it were, try and be a means of giving life and being a blessing to others. The seventh commandment, of course, is the protection of marriage. Neither shalt thou commit adultery. This command not only prohibits adultery, friends, uh, but all sexual activity outside of marriage. And not just the outward act, but also those that committed in the mind. As again the Lord told us, whosoever looks on a woman to lust after her has committed adultery with her in his heart. Sexual innuendos, jokes, impure things, unclean things. Oh, there's a, a, all these are forbidden under this uh, commandment. Friends, people, people little realize today the great damage that they are doing to themselves and others when they disregard this commandment. Now, sex is a gift from God. It's from Him. It's a beautiful gift, but it's to be confined within marriage. That's God's way. That's God's order. One man, one woman within marriage. Uh, this is the way uh, it, it is to be. This is God's ideal for society. This is the bedrock of our society. To abuse this gift of sex leads to multiple problems and misery. And that's what we're seeing in our society, sadly, is it not? We're seeing in, uh, 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 since the 60s, we've seen uh, this particular gift well being misused and abused and the confines of marriage are, are frowned upon, you're laughed upon, you're considered old-fashioned if you think in that kind of a way. Save yourself for marriage. But if you're a young man, you're a young woman here, you're not married yet, keep yourself. Keep your body for your, your future spouse and you find that that will be the greatest blessing for your life. Regrettably, a new morality is now in place and these old rules are being cast off and we're reaping in our society what we have sown. Uh, the eighth 
is uh, neither shalt thou steal, verse 19. Everyone uh, has a right uh, to private property. And this is an impo another important principle uh, in stable, a stable society where it's not respected or well, that leads to anarchy and murder. And then the ninth, uh, thou shalt not bear false witness against thy neighbor, not only in the court of law, uh, but in everyday life. Do not tell lies. And we can specifically assess here against your neighbor. You can lie, not only direct lies, but lies could be slander. You say something which is not true, backbiting, gossiping about your neighbor. All these things, misinformation, friends, or anything that may uh, injure his reputation. Yes, sometimes we have to speak about things. If they're true, we have to mention these things to others, to the necessary parties. We're not to sweep everything which is true under the carpet. But there are certain things that we need, uh, we don't need to mention, we don't need to pass on. And we need to be careful how we use our words about others and what we say about others. And then finally, the tenth commandment, and this is a unique commandment, and shows the uniqueness of biblical law because not only acts are condemned, but even thoughts and desires and aspirations are mentioned here. Neither shall thou desire, verse 21, or covet thy neighbor's wife, neither shall thou covet thy neighbor's house, his field or his manservant, his maidservant, his ox or his ass, or anything that is thy neighbor's. I don't have time to go into Friends, God looks on the heart. God looks on our hearts as well as our outward actions. And here is a commandment forbidding covetousness, evil desire, something that doesn't belong to us. Oh, if I have time, I could say a little bit more, but perhaps just I'll give you this one example. Covetousness leads to others breaking. If we're covetous in our hearts, it leads to the breaking of other sins. You remember Ahab in the Old Testament. King Ahab, and he wanted the, the vineyard. He coveted the vineyard of Naboth. And Naboth wouldn't give, give it to him because it was his and belonged to the family line. And he wanted to keep it within the family. But, Nahab, but Ahab wanted it, coveted it, went on and on, got sick and longed for it. In the end, to cut the long story short, he ended up murdering Naboth and then stealing uh, his uh, vineyard from him. He committed, not just covered, broke not just his 10th commandment, but also uh, murdered the 6th, and also stole uh, in breaking the 8th commandment. So uh, contentment, friends, in the hearts will keep us in so many ways. Well, I conclude, and I just want to bring you very quickly down to verse 29. Look at the words. This is the words of God. Oh, that there were such an heart in them, that they would fear me and keep all my commandments always, that it might be well with them and with their children forever. You get that? Oh, that's God. It's not me. That's God's word. Can you feel the heart of God? Oh, that my people will keep my commandments. Our friends, the Lord, make him the central person in your life. If you have slipped away, even as a believer, 
and you find even after, even now you're saved, you're on the way to glory, but the Lord has slipped in your life to second or third place, I don't know. Rethrone him. Put him back where he ought to be and let him be the center of your lives. Let's close by singing our final hymn, number 545. Master, speak thy servant here at 545.